Hello everybody and welcome to Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church. Greetings, welcome to a special episode. Special because today as I speak to you, it is Thursday the 24th of February, the day before my birthday. Feel free to send me lots of nice gluten-free cakes. Um, I wanted to bring something, actually talking of cakes, that would be an equivalent of me bringing a big cake into the office at work. You know, the way that people do that when it's your birthday. I've never fully understood that. Surely it should be the other way around. But anyway, I want to bring a gift. I want to bring my very best to the table. And, And when I say that, what I mean is my hand on my heart, this is what I believe to be true about God, about the Lord Jesus who's coming, who's preparing his people to come. And the world is reeling and lurching because of that, not because of anything else. Russia, Ukraine, Europe this morning, in the days, weeks, months ahead, is lurching and reeling and convulsing and creation indeed groaning because Jesus is en route. Jesus is coming. The King of Israel, the King of Jerusalem is coming. And um, I want to bring my best today with that in mind. I pray in the name of Jesus now, Father, that you'd cause your people, those who are called before the foundations of the earth were laid, those who are called by name like sheep in a flock, in the perfect care of a shepherd. Lord, I pray that you would cause spiritual sight to replace spiritual blindness and you'd cause spiritual hearing to replace spiritual deafness. I pray that you would reveal how much a miss is as good as a mile. I pray that you would reveal your uncompromising voice that strips forests bare and that presides over the birth of a deer. Lord, I pray that you would cause your people, those who you are calling to yourself as the great shepherd of the sheep, to hear your voice this morning, I pray in the precious name of Jesus. Just flick open to Luke 19. I want to just share some thoughts. And um, it it was J.C. Ryle who said, I really cared nothing for anyone's opinion and resolved not to consider one jot who was offended and who was not offended by anything I did. I saw no one whose opinion I cared for in the place and I resolved to ask nobody's counsel in the work of my parish or as to the matter or manner of my work in preaching, but just to do what I thought the Lord Jesus Christ would like and not to care one jot for the face of man. It's my birthday as I said, tomorrow, and this is for Jesus. This is that I'm bringing now is for you, Lord Jesus. It's for your glory. And I pray that people would hear and see what you're saying. I pray that it would glorify and please you. Pray, Lord, for more boldness in your people. Even in this moment, just as people just going through the motions of hearing another podcast another podcast have your perfect way i pray maranatha come lord may your people be ready may faith be found on the earth when you come what i want to bring now is entitled jesus weeps then he whips jesus weeps then he whips and it's partly written so I can be as concise as possible, but doubtless I will elaborate as needed. And as I said, Luke 19, this is in part relating to a very brief overview of the whole chapter of Luke 19, but specifically to then bring our thoughts to just a couple of verses towards the very end. I was grieved yesterday in learning about an event 
next month in London that is advertised as being a day of repentance, ecumenically supported across a number of different organisations, including CBR UK, Prophecy Today UK, Christian Concern, etc., etc., etc. Not only was I grieved by it, and when I say grieved, what I mean is a sudden reflex, intuitive, forcible check in my spirit. Not only was I grieved by it, but I was then distressed because of the apparent ridiculousness of my grief. Why on earth would, would you be grieved by this, Franks? Nick, why, why are you grieved by this? This is surely the very thing you're calling for. So I had grief, then I had distress at my grief, and then I had grief. I had grief, distress, grief. Surely, surely this is day of repentance. is exactly what you're calling for, Franks. So it might seem. I'm going to explain this grief, distress, grief response now. If, if we're even half-heartedly thinking about the eventual end of the age, again, whether in our lifetime or not, the eventual end of the age, and therefore the preparation of the church for Jesus' second coming, I think we do well to anticipate and, and therefore not reject offhand these types of convulsive, disruptive, even wildly outbursting types of emotion. So I'm going about my business and something comes to my attention and this is the way it often works and we should all know and relate to this to some extent. And something will suddenly come. And this is this is why when you might pray at the beginning of a day, Lord have your way with my day. God bless, Lord show us how to keep in step with you today, whatever that means. And then you go on into your day and something that you might think is innocuous or in incidental then happens and the impact on that on your heart is immense. Surprising, unnerving, perhaps disarming. And this is what I mean. If we're even half-heartedly thinking about the eventual end of the age and Jesus' return, we should anticipate, not reject offhand, these types of convulsive, disruptive, even wildly outbursting types of emotion. I'm going to show you clearly from Scripture in a minute what I mean by that. So like, like my heart churning, butterfly-inducing, stomach-sickening grief, distress, just grief response to this seemingly good thing of a day of repentance and a cohort of Christian parachurch organisations slapping their logo on it and signing up to it. This good thing, this seemingly good thing, and yet my response of sickness. You know, that word in the Greek that I'll mention in a moment is Jesus' guts being wrenched. Splagchisnamai is the word in, in Greek, and it, and it means this gut-wrenching compassion for Israel, for his people, for you and I. So there's this, this, this grief, this sickness in my stomach from seeing this seemingly good thing. And we see this now in Jesus as we come to in a moment at the end of this chapter, as he specifically as he approached Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. 
as we should all know, the very location, the exact location where his foot will again touch the Mount of Olives. So in Luke, Luke 19, as, a, as an overview, just maybe cast your, your eye to the page. We see, first of all, in Luke 19, we see that Jesus had an encounter with Zacchaeus, you know, the small wealthy tax collector who was up to no good until he caught wind of the the king of Israel, the king of the earth passing by. How staggering is this? This encounter with Zacchaeus with salvation indeed coming to an unlikely, unfavorable house. Unfavorable in the sense of in the view of all those who are grumbling. If you look at verse 7 of 19 there, all were grumbling. However unlikely or small or, or wealthy Zacchaeus was, he experienced, didn't he, the joy of Jesus' startling announcement in verse 5, I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today, says Jesus to Zacchaeus. And for those of you listening to me today, regardless of how you articulate with the establishment, how you relate with the institution. Jesus says, I must stay at your house today in the, in the words and in the thinking of Joshua. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So thinking of those, those, um, those emotions that I just described, um, you know, the, the anticipating of these convulsive, disruptive, even wildly outbursting types of emotion. Keep that in mind because in this first little bit of this overview of chapter 19, we've got Zacchaeus and we've got grumbling. The grumbling of all the people who thought how obscene that Jesus would go into Zacchaeus's house. And then we have joy. <laughs> we have Zacchaeus's joy in the penny that dropped. Then Jesus goes into the next section so if you look through verses 11 onwards, Jesus gives a kingdom parable of the 10 miners. Why? Well, because he's approaching Jerusalem. That's, that's explicit in verse 11. He gives the parable because he's approaching Jerusalem and because it was thought that the kingdom of God was about to appear in any moment. This misunderstanding of the kingdom of, of heaven, the kingdom of God, in thinking of Matthew 11, where Jesus talks of John the Baptist, and since the days of John the Baptist, the forceful, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it, or spiritually violent people lay hold of it. And that's what we're talking about. That's what I'm doing now. This is spiritual violence. Spiritual violence today is a gift, my birthday gift to you if you're listening. So, Zacchaeus, we have. The grumbling, and then we have the joy, but we had we have salvation, and then this this parable because of this misunderstanding of the kingdom and this the featured nobleman and this messianic type of man who goes off to a far country to receive a kingdom and then to return. And he tell what does he tell his servants? Well, we know as a repeated kind of refrain through these kingdom parables to, as he says to them, engage in business. Until I come, engage in business until I come. That's what the nobleman, the nobleman said to his citizens. But what does it say? And it's worth pausing to read. What does it say? His citizens hated him. 
This is not my interpretation. This is the written word of God. His citizens, Jesus approaching Jerusalem, giving this parable because he's approaching Jerusalem. He set his face like flint towards Jerusalem because he's going to die. The lamb of God is going to be slaughtered and his blood will sign a new covenant. So the nobleman's citizens hated him. And it's difficult for us to understand how wicked this is. They sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this. We, don't, we have no interest in this rule and reign of this nobleman. We don't have, want any part in it. We don't like it. It's not to our taste. It's not to our liking. We say, thank you, but no thank you. I suspect they didn't even say thank you. We just say no. They wanted nothing to do with him. And yet on the return of the nobleman, there was some profit. We know that some had been faithful with their profit, with their what they had put, with their what it meant for them to engage in business until he came. So we, we've got the longing of another world. We've got a longing for another kingdom. And we've got hatred and slander and character assassination. Keep in mind what I said about these types of sudden, reflex, intuitive, forcible, convulsive, disruptive, wildly outbursting types of emotion. So with Zacchaeus, we had the grumbling and then the joy of Zacchaeus. We had salvation. Then we had in this parable, we have the longing for another world, another kingdom. Then we had the hatred and the character assassination of these wicked citizens. And so we have judgment. And finally, in verse 27, we have a slaughtering Jesus. We have no idea about this man. We have no idea about this Messiah. We have no idea about this king who comes, whose garments will be tainted with crimson blood, not of, his, not of himself, but of those who he executes, those who he slays, those who he slaughters. And that's what we see in verse 27. And then you see, we see Jesus, if you, if you look at verse 28, or we come into the next section after the parable, um, from verse 29 onwards, sorry, verse 28 onwards, and Jesus makes a beeline for Jerusalem. That's what we see him do. He gives the parable and then makes his way to Jerusalem. And he sends two anonymous disciples ahead of him to prepare the way for his triumphal entry, triumphal in inverted commas, because it's not going to compare to his triumphal entry when he returns. There was so much misunderstanding swirling about what was going on when Jesus fulfilled this part of Isaiah's prophecy in, in Isaiah 62, this messianic donkey triumphal entry of sorts. It's worth just noting verse 30 that that captures that in this section compared with verse 13 in the parable that I've just mentioned and skipped over. Verse 30 compared with verse 13. And so these two anonymous disciples, why they were anonymous, I don't know, but they were, and they found things exactly as Jesus had said. They found things exactly as Jesus had said to them, verse 32. And I want to just say in passing that when cults are untied, when donkeys, when messianic, details are untied or fulfilled, there will always be those who question God's movement, God's wisdom, seemingly reasonably from the footing of what, what we might think is legal reasonableness. This person who asked a question, 
who Jesus anticipated, by the way, and told his two anonymous disciples they will ask you, quite reasonably asks, why are you untying my donkey? It doesn't belong to you, chaps. Who the heck are you? And the disciples, just like the Spirit of God would tell people in advance before they're, they're hauled before courts and councils, don't worry about in advance what you need to say. I'll give you what you need to say in the very moment. So Jesus, in a, in a similar way, he'd given them what to say. And so, so to fulfill this, Isaiah sixty two eleven. When cult, just just as a as a as a an aside, really for us all today. When if your heart is set towards Jerusalem, in that sense, if you are set towards faithfulness and doing whatever it is that God wants you to do, regardless of what that may mean for your life. When cults are untied, when donkeys are untied, there will always be those who question God's movements. And so we have this rejoicing. Look at these, these anticipating of these types of emotion that we're supposed to, I think, have as disruption, radical root level disruption happens. And my just thinking of my distress, my grief and distress, which I'll clarify in a moment. So with Zacchaeus, we have grumbling and we have of the people and we have joy, but we but there was salvation. And then we had longing for another world and hatred and slander and character assassination, but there was the judgment, so salvation and judgment. Then in this triumphal entry, we've got rejoicing and wonder and worship. We also have profound spiritual blindness. In verse 39, as Jesus drew near, as he rode in, and as palm branches, as the cries of Hosanna went forth, there were the the Pharisees, the spiritually blind, maybe even some of the disciples who weren't comfortable with it. Verse 39, Jesus, what does he say famously, that if, if they don't do this, even the rocks will cry out. So we have the rejoicing, the wonder and worship, we have the spiritual blindness, but then we, we have a drawing nigh, you know, and that's what we read in Luke 21, verse 28. Lift up your head, straighten up, walk correct, church. Sort your posture out because your redemption draws nigh. And that's what was happening. And then finally, in verses 41 to 44, and I want to just read them out because these verses are the, the verses that will answer, I think, why I had this response of grief, distress, grief. Let's just read these verses in, uh, in, in brief. Luke 19, verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Notice the exclamation mark. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeps, Jesus wept. It should reminiscent, be reminiscent to us of John 11 and uh, the occasion with Lazarus and the other occasion we see Jesus weeping. This explains my grief, distress, grief. Why? Well, because as Jesus says there in verse 41, if only, if only Jerusalem, you had known the things that make for peace. Verse 42, but they are hidden from your eyes. And Jesus crying, Jesus weeping was 
again with that exclamation mark in that verse in mind was out loud it was la- it was very middle eastern it was very jewish it was very unlike britain it was very unbritish it was very unwestern in that sense it was loud it was attention drawing it was with exclamation and that's the kind of gut wrench splag of jesus as he approaches the place that he loves his people whom he loves who's about to shed his blood for who didn't make for peace. And this doesn't just mean the Jews. I don't think this just means the Jewish people. In verse 44, the second thing that Jesus says in this little passage is because you did not know the time of your visitation. Israel, my people, the Jewish people, you didn't see. The the Jewish people today still don't understand who Jesus is and who Jesus was as he came, the cross. It's just a blindness that's very difficult to understand. How can any human being be that blind? How can any nation be that blind? Because they did not know the time of their visitation is what Jesus said. And that's his anticipating of that. But do you know what? The same kind of spiritual blindness that permeates the gospel of John, particularly when we see the interaction of Jesus with the Pharisees, but not only with the Pharisees, this is what we've got here. I want you to hear me this morning, guys. This spiritual blindness isn't only for the unbelieving world, this secular world that don't know him and that will never know him. It's also for his people who do know him. So when you hear Jesus crying aloud, weeping, things, if only you'd known church, the thing, if only you would know today the things that make for peace. If only church today you would know the time of your visitation. God doesn't want us to come to him to repent for abortion. Listen carefully to what I mean when I say that. God doesn't want us to come to him to repent for abortion. God wants us to come to him to repent. Think about what I'm saying. God doesn't want us to come to him on our terms with our timescale, with our methods, with our decorum, with our business as usual in place, but from a total, disrupted, flawed, never been here before, I have no point of reference for this, I have my own grief, distress, grief, from that place, instead of trying to shoehorn our day of repentance, into our business as usual, it's a stench in his nostrils. When we come to him with this top button in the wrong hole, we don't come to him to repent about a million babies. We come to repent about the general lay of the land that has facilitated silence on that for decades. This is why the timescale issue is very important. We don't come for a day of repentance that we fit in within all of our schedules and rotors. Something that's ecumenically acceptable. My grief seeing all these logos of these different organisations, and I know full well what goes on in some of these organisations. I know full well the type of behaviour that goes on in some of these organisations. I know full well. And to see these organisational logos slapped on a day of repentance, somehow rubber stamping the, the authenticity of this before the sight of a holy, thrice holy God, it makes me sick. 
Who do we think we are? Let me tell you, let me qualify what I'm saying. What would it look like then, Franks? That's the question. What would this look like? What would be acceptable? Maybe, you, maybe you're offended already. I want you to hear me very carefully. Honestly, I'm not sure. And I think that's okay. The Germans would say, Ich weiß nicht. I do not know. I do not understand. And Jesus is saying that. In his grief, in his weeping, in his travail, in his gut-wrenched state of his own distress, he's saying, if only that you would know Jerusalem, my people today, my church, my body, my bride, if only you would know the things that make for peace. We don't know. Certainly in and of ourselves, we know nothing. Ich weiß nicht. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. So this this not knowing is okay. And I think it's more than okay. I think it's needed. When we try and brand, you know, and market and advertise and promote and try and whip up something that's needed, it's fake. It's counterfeit. So I'm saying to you, honestly, what does it look like then? I don't know. I don't know what is going to, I don't know what's going to be needed to happen within the church for us to be sufficiently disrupted for this just not to be another initiative or venture add-on to everything else that goes on. So that's my most fundamental position is that before, before the Lord, in my own personal place of prayer and accountability before him, under his headship, I don't know, but I think that's okay and I think it's needed. But if I had to get hazard a guess, let me tell you what I think it would look like. And this is hazarding, only hazarding a guess. I think it will, when repentance and disruption happens, as God is commanding it for it to happen, a couple of things. Firstly, I think it will look like a radical dissimilarity with the mainstream business as usual. When you think of the mainstream business as usual, you think of Christian conferences Logos, organizations, ecumenicalism, speakers with bio headshots or organizations with logos to somehow rubber stamp bona fide, you know, reputation, human reputation, credibility must be slaughtered. The very verse, verse 27 of, of chapter 19. But as for these enemies of mine who did not know, who did not, who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. How much of our business as usual is actually just an expression of our not wanting him to rule over us? Because we don't, we don't want him to do what he wants. When we begin to conceive in our mind of what it might be that he wants, we just say no. So I think firstly that if, if I was to hazard a guess, I think it would look like a radical dissimilarity with the mainstream in the ways that I've just just dis- described. Secondly, I think a, r- a radically disruptive time disruptive timescale. Not fitting repentance within our schedules, but rather for it to be our schedule. This is why I think this is preeminently important over evangelism. Arguably even over preaching. A new priority is what I think it will look like, where repentance is not understood to be something that we slap logos on and hire a Westminster Hall for, but rather 
commit to a new disrupted way of living, of worshipping, of gathering. A day of repentance is a contradiction in terms. Number three, I think it will probably be more private than public. Go home and ask God to forgive you and then do what he tells you to do. We speak regularly with people who have had their own conscience conscription. They've come to the wilderness of not being able to resolve their longing to be with the people of God because the people of God are unfaithful. They're not willing to compromise and they're not willing to compromise because the spirit of God has done that in them. If you're struggling with that today, God has done that in you. You think of Jesus as the Lamb of God who was gonna, who's about to take away the sin of the world. You think of Moses telling the Israelites to go into their homes and take a lamb and kill it, slaughter it, and put its blood on the doorposts and lintels so that the plague would pass over them. This, this emphasis on on the privacy of our homes and our households. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Is a lot more unpopular than we might think because we want there to be a public day of repentance. We want a national day of repentance. What about if, what, 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 this is me hazarding a guess. So that's my caveat. What, what would it be like if, what would it be, what perhaps if God was putting emphasis on our homes, go into your homes, get right with God, pray for forgiveness, repent, and do what he tells you to do. We were speaking to somebody just yesterday with their own conscience conscription, their inability to resolve their longing to be with the people of God, with the unfaithfulness of the people of God. and Maybe a little light bulb just going on, thinking of what I've just said, go home, pray for forgiveness and do what he tells you to do. Is it any more complicated than taking the gospel to people, taking Jesus to people? Our new, and this is just us. Do your own. You don't have to. You don't have to use our material or do it in just the same way or say, and say it in just the same way. I think we said the things that we're saying in our gospel tract. Repent now. He loves you. We're saying them for a reason. It's not a personal preference as much as it's a objective reality and an objective observation that we need to have a reality check and an apology to people that don't yet know Jesus. Take Jesus to people, go into homes, buy Bibles, get them ready in your house, so that when people who God is already working in come and say, yes, please, can I have my free Bible? Before you know it, you've got, a, you've got a church in your house. Maybe God's doing that. Maybe God wants you to start a church in your house. Maybe God wants you to be a Chloe. Solid, trustworthy, reliable. Aware of gossip. Aware of dishonour of spiritual leaders under God. So maybe this is going to be more private than public. And finally, I just want to just finish with this. Having entitled this, Jesus whip, weeps and then he whips. The final verses of, of this chapter that we're looking at, verses 40, excuse me, verses 45 to 48. And this is why it's... Reminiscent, and this is for your notes, of Matthew 11. And the fact that in Matthew 11, verse 29, you have the, the famous passage, Jesus giving us this unique insight into his heart, gentle and lonely. Come to me, all you who are weary 
and heavy laden, I'll give you rest and so on, taking his yoke upon. You've got that and then you've got after that Jesus, sorry, before that you've got Jesus um, talking of John the Baptist and commending and highing high and aloft the need for spiritual violence. So you've got spiritual violence and you've got Jesus gentle and lowly, take my yoke upon you and so on. You've got all of that in the same discourse. But similarly here, Jesus has wept on his way in the way that I've just described for the reasons I've just just explained. And then it comes to him taking a leather, piece of leather, very premeditatively, very carefully, making a whip and clearing the temple. Isaiah 56, 7, my house will be a what? A house of prayer, not a what? A den of robbers, iniquity, religious idolatry, half-heartedness. A citizen saying of the nobleman, no. That's what was going on in the temple. Citizens saying to the nobleman, no, we don't want you. A day of repentance is a contradiction in terms. And I think the devil and I think our own flesh will do quite amazing spiritual gymnastics to do all that we can to avoid doing the one thing that he's commanding, which is to stop. Talking of a day of visitation and Jesus, the main focus there of verses 41 to 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. If you're looking at those verses with me now, that's what, those are the two things that Jesus says. Oh, that you would know the things that make for peace. I don't think we do know. I don't think we understand what is required for us to stop the arrhythmias of ecclesiological church, bride, body, chaos. So he wants the things that make for peace. And then secondly, because you did not know the time of your visitation, back end of verse 44, that knowing the things that are truly going to be peace result in peace rather than the things I think the church and I think the church will talk about repentance I think the church will put on events about repentance I think the church will try and mobilize the church to repent about abortion or about some other things but they won't fundamentally come to the place of repenting about the sullying of the name of Jesus there's plenty of time to repent about abortion and I think there's a, there's a subtle but a profound difference here that the church will really struggle with and you're probably struggling with today. And the visitation, I think that's what's happened. I think he has graciously given us, talking of this gymna spiritual gymnastic at all costs to avoid doing the one thing that he's commanding, which is to stop. I think the visitation has happened. I think he's spoken to the church. I think he is profoundly demonstrated his displeasure at the unfaithfulness of the church and will we be like the Jews who have so profoundly missed the things that truly result in peace and his visitation to us there's an equivalent in the church today I believe of these of this spiritual blindness and deafness to the things of God that's equivalent to the Jewish people today still putting their head on a wall and wailing because they have not seen who Jesus is. 
Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would cause your people to hear your subtle voice, your whispers. Lord, I pray that there would be whatever it takes in this nation and in the West, and God knows what is coming, that there would be such radical disruption that repentance would not be a day or an event, but it would be a new normal. I pray in the precious name of Jesus that you'd have grace and mercy, that we would know your weeping and your whipping. And unlike the citizens in that parable, the citizens who didn't want you, we say to you, or at least some of us do today, Lord, we we want you. We recognize who you are. We recognize what you've achieved in Jerusalem, what you've achieved at Calvary and what you're returning to do and what you're going to return to inaugurate and what you're going and how you're going to return in glory. We look to you and we say yes. Amen. Maranatha. Amen. So be it. We pray in the precious name of Jesus for your glory. Abba Father. Amen.